Book Thirteen, Part Three of Ovid's Metamorphosis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Case. Metamorphosis by Publius Ovidius Naso. Translated by Brooks Moore. Book Thirteen, Part Three. The conqueror, Ulysses, now set sail for Lemnos, country of Hypsipyle, and for the land of Thoas, famed afar, those regions infamous in olden days, where women slew their husbands. So he went that he might capture and bring back with him the arrows of brave Hercules. When these were given back to the Greeks, their lord with them, a final hand at last prevailed to end that long-fought war. Both Troy and Priam fell, and Priam's wretched wife lost all she had, until at last she lost her human form. Her savage barkings frightened foreign lands, where the Helen spot is narrowed down. Great Troy was burning. While the fire still raged, Jove's altar drank old Priam's scanty blood. The priestess of Apollo, then, alas, was dragged by her long hair, while up towards heaven she lifted supplicating hands in vain. The Trojan matrons, clinging while they could to burning temples and ancestral gods, victorious Greeks drag off as welcome spoil. Styanax was hurled down from the very tower from which he often had looked forth and seen his father, by his mother pointed out, when Hector fought for honor and his country's weal. Now Boreas counsels to depart. The sails, moved by a prosperous breeze, resound and wave. The Trojan women cry, Farewell to Troy! Ah, we are hurried off! And falling down, they kiss the soil, and leave the smoking roofs of their loved native land. The last to go on board the fleet was Hecuba, a sight most pitiful. She was found among the tombs of her lost sons. While she embraced each urn, and fondly kissed their bones, Ulysses came with ruthless hands, and bore her off. His prize she in her bosom took away the urn of Hector only, and upon his grave she left some white hair taken from her head, a meagre gift, her white hair and her tears. Across the strait from Troy there is a land claimed by Bistonian men, and in that land was a rich palace, built there by a king named Polymnestor, to him, the Phrygian king, in secret, gave his youngest son to rear. His Polydorius, safe from Troy and war, a prudent course, if he had not sent gold arousing greed, incitement to a crime. Soon, when the fortunes of the Trojans fell, that wicked king of Thrace took his own sword and pierced the throat of his poor foster son, and then, as if the deed could be concealed, if he removed the body, hurled the boy from a wild cliff into the waves below. Until the sea might be more calm, and gales of wind might be subdued, Atridius moored his fleet of ships upon the Thracian shore. There, from wide gapping earth, Achilles rose, as large as when he lived, with look as fierce as when his sword once threatened Agamemnon. Forgetting me, do you depart, O Greeks, he said. 
and is your grateful memory of all my worth interred with my bones? Do not do so, and that my sepulchre may have due worship. Let Polynesia be immolated to appease the ghost of dead Achilles. Fiercely, so he spoke, the old friends of Achilles all obeyed his unforgiving shade, and instantly the noble and unhappy virgin, brave more like a man than woman, was torn from her mother's bosom, cherished more by her, since widowed and alone. And then they led the virgin as a sacrifice from there up to the cruel altar. When the maid observed the savage rites prepared for her, and when she noticed Neptolemus stand by her with his cruel sword in hand, his fixed eyes on her countenance, she said, Do not delay my generous gift of blood. With no resistance thrust the ready steel into my throat or breast. And then she laid both throat and bosom bare. Polynesia would never wish to live in slavery, and such rites win no favor from a god. Only I fondly wish my mother might not know that I have died. My love of her takes from my joy in death and gives me fear. Not my death, truly, but her own sad life should be the most lamented in her tears. Now let your men stand back, that I may go with dignity down to the Stygian shades, and, if my plea is just, let no man's hand touch my pure virgin body. A nobler gift to him, whoever he may be, whom you desire to placate with my death to-day, shall be a free maid's blood. But, if my words, my parting wish, has power to touch your hearts, King Priam's daughter, not a captive, pleads, freely return my body to my mother. Let her not pay with gold for the sad right to bury me, but only with her tears. Yes, when she could, she also paid with gold. After she said these words, the people could no more restrain their tears, but no one saw her shed one tear. Even the priest himself, reluctantly and weeping, drove the steel into her preferred breast. On failing knees she sank down to the earth, but still maintained a countenance undaunted to the last. And, even unto death, it was her care to cover all that ought to be concealed, and save the value of chaste modesty. The Trojan matrons took her and recalled, lamenting, all the sons of Priam dead, the wealth of blood one house had shed for all. And they bewailed the chaste Polynesia, and you, her mother, only lately called a royal mother and a royal wife, the soul of Asia's fair prosperity, now lowest fallen in all the wreck of Troy. The conquering Ulysses only claimed her his because she had brought Hector forth, and Hector hardly found a master for his mother. She continued to embrace the body of a soul so brave, and shed her tears, as she had shed them often before for country lost, for sons, for royal mate. She bathed her daughter's wounds with tears, and kissed them with her lips, and once more beat her breast. Her white hair streamed down in clotting blood. She tore her breast, and this and more she said, My daughter, what further sorrow can be mine? My daughter, you lie dead. I see your wounds. They are indeed my own. Lest I should lose one child of mine without a cruel sword, you have your wound. I thought, because you were a woman, you were safe from swords. But you, a woman, 
felt the deadly steel, that same Achilles, who has given to death so many of your brothers, caused your death, the bane of Troy and the serpent by my nest. When Paris and when Phoebus with their shafts had laid him low, ah, now at last, I said, Achilles will no longer cause me dread. Yet even then he still was to be feared. For him I have been fertile. Mighty Troy now lies in ruin, and the public woe is ended in one vast calamity. For me alone the woe of Troy still lives. But lately, on the pinnacle of fame, surrounded by my powerful sons-in-law, daughters, and daughters-in-law, and strong in my great household, I am now exiled, and destitute, and forced from the sad tombs of those I love, to wretched slavery, serving Penelope, who, showing me to curious dames of Ithaca, will point and say, while I am bending to my task, Look at that woman who was widely known, the mother of great Hector, once the wife of Priam. After so many have been lost, now you, last comfort of a mother's grief, must make atonement on the foreman's tomb. I bore a victim for my enemy. Why do I live? An iron-witted wretch? Why do I linger? Why does cruel age detain me? Why, pernicious deities, thus hold me to this earth, unless you will that I may weep at future funerals? After the fall of Troy, who would suppose King Priam could be happy? Blessed in death, he has not seen my daughter's dreadful fate. He lost at once his kingdom and his life. Can I imagine you, a royal maid, will soon be honored with due funeral rites, and will be buried in our family tomb? Such fortune comes no more to your sad house. A drift of foreign sand will be your grave. The parting gift will be your mother's tears. We have lost everything. But no, there is one reason why I should endure a while. His mother's dearest, now her only child, once youngest of that great company of sons, my Polydorus lives here and on these shores, protected by the friendly Thracian king. Then why delay to bathe these cruel wounds, her dear face splattered with dreadful blood? So Hecuba went wailing towards the shore with aged step and tearing her gray hair. At last the unhappy mother said, Give me an urn, O Trojan women, for she wished to dip up salt sea water. But just then she saw the corpse of her last son thrown out upon the shore. Her Polydorus killed, disfigured with deep wounds of Thracian swords. The Trojan women cried aloud, and she was struck dumb with her agony, which quiet consumed both voice and tears within her heart. Rigid and still she seemed as a hard rock. And now she gazes at the earth in front, now lifts her haggard head up toward the skies, now scans that body lying stark and dead, now scans his wounds, and most of all the wounds. She arms herself and draws up all her wrath, it burned as if she still held regal power she gave up all life to the single thought of quick revenge. Just as a lioness rages when plundered of her suckling cub and follows on his trail the unseen foe, so Hecuba, with rage mixed in her grief, forgetful of her years, not her intent, went hastily to Polynestor, which contrived this dreadful murder, and desired an interview, 
pretending it was her wish to show him hidden gold, for her lost son. The Odrysian king believed it all. Accustomed to the love of gain, he went with her, in secret, to the spot she chose. Then craftily he said in his bland way, O oh, Hecuba, you need not wait. Give now, munificently to your son, and all you give, and all that you have given, by the good gods, I swear, shall be his own. She eyed him sternly as he spoke, and swore so falsely. Then her rage boiled over, and seconded by all her captive train, she flew at him and drove her fingers deep in his perfidious eyes, and tore them from his face, and plunged her hands into the raw and bleeding sockets. Passion made her strong, defiled with his bad blood. How could she tear his eyes, gone from their seats? She wildly gouged the sightless sockets of his bleeding face. The Thracians, angered by such violence done upon their king, immediately attacked the Trojan matron with their stones and darts, but she, with hoarse growling and snapping jaws, sprang at the stones, and, when she tried to speak, she barked like a fierce dog. The place still bears a name suggested by her hideous change, and she, long mindful of her old-time woe, ran howling dismally in Thracial fields. Her sad fate moved the Trojans and the Greeks, her friends and foes, and all the heavenly gods. Yes, all, for even the sister-wife of Jove denied that Hecuba deserved such a fate. Although Aurora had given aid to Troy, she had no heart nor leisure to be moved by fall of Troy or fate of Hecuba. At home she bore a greater grief and care. Her loss of Memnon is afflicting her. Aurora, his rose-tinted mother, saw him perish by Achilles' deadly spear upon the Phrygian plain. She saw his death, and the loved rose that lights the dawning hour turned death pale, and the sky was veiled in clouds. The parent could not bear to see his limbs laid on the final flames. Just as she was, with loose hair streaming round her, she did not disdain to crouch down at the knees of Jove, and said these sad words added to her tears. Beneath all those whom golden heaven sustains, inferior, foresee, through all the world my temples are so few. I have come now, a goddess, to you, not with any hope that you may grant me temples, festivals, and altars, heated with devoted flames, but if you will consider the good deeds which I, a woman, may yet do for you, when at the dawn I mark the edge of night, then you may think of some reward for me. But that is not my care, nor is it how Aurora's purpose here, that she should plead for honors, though deserved. I come bereaved of my son Memnine, who in vain bore arms to aid his uncle, and in the prime of life, oh, thus you willed it, fell stricken by the sword of great Achilles. Give my son, I pray, O highest ruler of the gods, some honor, some comfort for his death, a little ease for his mother's grief. Jove nodded his assent. Immediately the high-wrought funeral pile of Memnon fell down with its lofty fire, and volumes of black smoke obscured the day, as streams exhaling their dense rising fogs exclude the bright sun from the land below. Black ashes fly, 
and rolling up a shape, retain a form and gather heat, and life out of the fire. Their lightness gave them wings, first like a bird, and then in fact a bird. The wings move, whirring. In the neighboring air, uncounted sisters, of one birth and growth together make one noise. Three times they flew around the funeral pile, and thrice the sound accordant of their fluttering wings went swift upon the soft breeze. When they turned about, their fourth flight in the skies divided them, as two fierce races from two hostile camps clashed in their warfare. These bird sisters, with their beaks and crooked claws clashed, passionate, until their tired wings and opposing breasts could not sustain them. And those kindred foes fell down a sacrifice, memorial, to Memnon's ashes buried in that place. Brave Memnon, author of their birth, has given his name to those birds, marvelously formed, and from him they are called Memnidids. Now, always when the sun has passed the twelfth sign of the zodiac, they war again to perish as a sacrifice for him. So others grieved, while Dimas' royal daughter was barking. But Aurora, overcome with lasting sorrow, could not think of her, and even now she sheds affectionate tears and sprinkles them as dew on all the world. The fates did not allow the hope of Troy to be destroyed entirely with her walls. Aeneas, the heroic son of Venus, bore on his shoulders holy images, and still another holy weight, his sire, a venerable burden. From all his wealth the pious hero chose this for his care, together with his child, Ascanius. Then, with a fleet of exiles, he sailed forth. He leaves Antandrus, leaves the wicked realm and shore of Thrace, now dripping with the blood of Polydorus. With fair winds and tide, he and his comrades reach Apollo's isle. Good Aeneas, king of Delos, vigilant for all his subjects' welfare, and as priest devoted to Apollo, took him there into his temple and his home, and showed the city, the famed shrines, and the two trees, which once Latona, while in labor, held. They burned sweet incense, added it to wine, and laid the flesh of cattle in the flames, an offering marked by custom for the god. Then, in the palace and its kingly hall, reclining on luxurious couches, they drank flowing wine with Sarus' gift of food. But old Ancasis asked, O chosen priest of Phoebus, can I be deceived? When I first saw these walls, did you not have a son, and twice two daughters? Is it possible I am mistaken? Aeneas replied, shaking his temples, wreathed with fillets white. It can be no mistake, great hero, you did see the father of five children then, so much the risk of fortune may affect the best of men. You see me now, almost bereft of all. For what assistance can my absent son afford, while he is king, the ruler over Andros, that land named for his name, over which he rules for me? The Delian god gave to my son the art of augury, and likewise Liber gave my daughters precious gifts exceeding all my wishes and belief, since everything my daughters touched assumed the forms of corn, of sparkling wine, or gray-green olive oil. 
most surely wonderful advantages. Soon as Atreides, he who conquered Troy, had heard of this, for you should not suppose that we, too, did not suffer from your storms, he dragged my daughters there with savage force, from my beloved bosom to his hostile camp, and ordered them to feed the Argive fleet, by their divinely given power of touch. Whichever way they could, they made escape. Two hastened to Euboea, and two sought their brother's island, Andros. Quickly, then, an Argive squadron, following, threatened war, unless they were surrendered. The brother's love gave way to fear, and there is reason why you should forgive a timid brother's fear. He had no warrior like Aeneas, none like Hector, by whose prowess you held Troy from its destruction through ten years of war. Strong chains were brought to hold my daughter's arms. Both lifted suppliant hands, which still were free, to heaven and cried, O oh, Father Bacchus, give us needed aid. And he who had before given them the power of touch did give them aid, if giving freedom without human shape can be called giving aid. I never knew by what means they lost shape, and cannot tell, but their calamity is surely known. My daughters were transformed to snow-white doves, white birds of Venus, guardian of your days. With this and other talk they shared the feast, then left the table and retired to sleep. They rose up with the day, and went at once to hear the oracle of Phoebus speak. He counseled them to leave that land and find their ancient mother and their kindred shores. The king attended them, and gave them gifts when ready to depart. A scepter to Anchises, and a robe and quiver to his grandson, and he gave a goblet to Aeneas, that which formerly was sent to him by Thersus, once his Theban guest. Thersus had sent it from Aeonian shores, but Alcon the Hylian should be named, for he had made the goblet and inscribed a pictured story on the polished side. There was a city shown with seven gates, from which the name could be derived by all. Outside the walls was a sad funeral, and tombs and fires and funeral pyres were shown, and many matrons with disheveled hair and naked breasts, expressive of their grief, and many nymphs, too, weeping mournfully because their streams were dry. Without a leaf, the bare trees stood straight up, and the she-goats were nibbling in dry, stony fields. And there he carved Orion's daughters in the Theban square, one giving her bare throat a cruel cut, one with her shuttle making clumsy wounds, both dying for their people. Next they were borne out through the city with due funeral pomp, and the mourning crowds were gathered around their pyre. Then from the virgin ashes, lest the race should die, two youths arose, whose fame has named Coroni, and they shared in all the rites becoming from their mother's dust, even so, in shining figures, all was shown inscribed on ancient bronze. The top rim, made quite rough, was gilded with acanthus leaves. Presents of equal worth the Trojans gave, a maple incense casket for the priest, a bowl, a crown adorned with gold and gems. End of Book 13, Part 3